Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 to 9. And just to remind everyone what we're doing, we are taking somewhat of a survey of the book of Genesis, not just the book of Genesis, but some other Old Testament uh, books as well that really highlight a lot of the things that we find within the New Testament. There are so many different passages that are quoted from the Old Testament in the New, and so many biblical figures that are used as certain examples that it is needful for us to, to understand the significance of these individuals, the significance of their circumstances that they were in, and how they are used as examples of faith, or oftentimes, at least with the nation of Israel as a whole, as you read the Corinthian epistles, a lot of times that they are used as examples of what not to do. But we want to understand to the best of our ability the significance of a number of these passages so that's why we began in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 was the first announcement of the coming Redeemer. You have the gospel being given all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And we talked about that, how it was going to be from the seed of the woman, the one who was coming would crush the head of the serpent. We know that was talking about the Lord Jesus and what he would accomplish in his finished work. We talked about Genesis 6 of the days of Noah, what the days of Noah were like how evil man was in those days, so much so that there was nothing less that was required than judgment upon all mankind, and God brought that judgment uh, within the, uh, or excuse me, rather, uh, with the flood. And we talked about how, uh, how evil that man was in the sense of openly rebelling against God, openly aligning themselves uh, with um, demonic, demonic forces, and, and the grace of God that was shown to one man and his family, which was very amazing. Just to consider that all mankind deserved death, all mankind deserved God's wrath, and the scripture tells us, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Tonight we are looking at Abraham, and we're going to be spending a, a few Wednesday evenings on Abraham, because he is such a central figure within the scripture. I mean, he's the father of, of the Jewish nation. He was one who was called a friend of God. He is one that has great significance in the lives of the believers even today. Because as we read in Genesis, or excuse me, in Galatians in our opening passage, if you are of the faith, then you are regarded as children of Abraham. He is a giant, if you will, in the faith within the scripture, a central figure in redemptive history. Of course, he had his, his sins and his flaws that are recorded for us as well, and those we will be going over in the coming weeks. But he is used as an example of faith. Paul uses him as an example of faith in Romans and in Galatians. James uses him as well in his epistle. Uh, we need to understand Abraham. We need to know about Abraham. We need to understand the significance of this man that God had called to enter into covenant with him. 
Some of the amazing things that we find within this passage as well, just in these first nine verses, not only of God's grace, of God's sovereignty, of the faith of Abraham and his obedience, but we also see some of the things uh, that, were, that were promoting Abraham, or rather moving Abraham, in order to worship God. And this is just something to say in passing as we're working our way through that, that we don't want to miss this, is that there were no significant big to-dos uh, that prompted Abraham to worship God other than the promises of God. And I say that in light of the kind of culture that is within American Christianity today. You have to have the lights and you're going to have the, the setting and the, the production and, and all of this sort of thing in order to manipulate your emotions that you feel like you're worshiping God. But all that is necessary for the people of God to worship is to just reflect upon the majesty and the glory of God and all that He has done for us in Christ. That alone... That alone should cultivate within us a greater desire for worship and honor of the Lord. So we'll talk a little bit about that and more so as we work our way through the account of Abraham. But if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're looking at Genesis chapter 12 and we'll be reading verses 1 to 9. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Moreh, now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for all that it reveals to us about who you are. And this is the very thing that we desire, to know more of you. And so we ask that the Spirit of God would guide our thoughts and would illuminate this passage within our hearts, that we would grow, grow in our relationship to you seeing how magnificent that you truly are. Simply being in awe of your being, and not necessarily with all the things that you do for us in Christ, it only enhance it even more. Father, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. So guide us tonight. Work within us all you desire. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. 
a little bit of background on Abram in the um, genealogy that is given to us in Genesis chapter 11 of the descendants of Shem. We read of Abraham's dad, Terah. In verse 26, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the, gene- of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out, toward, uh, they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, we read of the Tower of Babel. After Noah and his family came off the ark and they began to multiply once again, the the people were once again being uh, multiplied on the earth, having families of their own. The earth is being populated The people themselves become disobedient rather than scattering as the Lord had commanded. They begin to gather in one particular place. And as a result of this rebellion against the Lord, once again, as they are building this tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves in the earth, the Lord confounded the languages and the Lord scattered them over the earth. This was was to fulfill exactly what the Lord had intended, that as the families of Noah, as they begin to multiply, they begin to have children, they begin to marry, etc., etc., that they begin to populate the earth rather than staying in one spot. And so as the Lord had performed this judgment against them, then what was achieved was that they were scattered out, and they are now populating in the various lands. Terah and his family... We're coming from Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. Terah seemed to be uh, obviously the patriarch of his family. He is the one who is taking Abram, his son, meaning his son is under his authority. They are leaving the place that they had originally been in Ur of the Chaldeans. They're going toward the land of Canaan. And instead of entering the land, they settle in Haran. This is where Terah is going to die. And then the Lord is going to call Abram. Now this is, this is a very significant event, obviously. Because if we begin to think about what was the culture like that Abram was coming from, what was his father like, what did they, what did they do as far as worship? What well, Joshua tells us in Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. 
Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So they're coming from a very polytheistic culture. They serve many gods. Uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, this is in the land of Babylonia. Ur was the center of worship of the moon god uh, Sin. They worshiped these, uh, these particular gods. This, again, is a polytheistic uh, land. This isn't the fact of Abraham uh, being chosen to leave this land because of his relationship to the Lord. This is the Lord entering into his life and entering into relationship with him by calling him out of a polytheistic uh, setting and showing himself to Abram in the sense of the truth of who he is, that he is indeed the only God. Coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the city was believed to be very sophisticated, well-designed, wealthy, uh, provided some of the best comforts. And from here, in this particular area, he moves to Haran, and this is where the Lord is going to call him. Lord, the Lord is going to enter into covenant with Abram, who is indeed going to be the father of Israel, a father of a new nation, the father of the faith as a whole. Now we can look at this and say, okay, Abram is called by the Lord to go into another country. But you have to think of the significance of what the Lord is saying. Leave your comfort that you know in the land of your father. Leave all your security that you have there, your father's domain, and you need to come to the land that I will show you. A land that you haven't been to before. We don't know what it's like. Abraham doesn't know what it's like. But the Lord has called to him, has entered into covenant with him, and then you see this obedience on the part of Abraham to follow. To leave all the comforts in which they had previously, and obviously Abram's a wealthy man, but he's leaving the land of his father, he's leaving his family, the family of his father, going to a place that he doesn't even know. Now this, this is not something small. This is something huge within the life of a person in this time. It would be even that way even today. I mean, let's say if the Lord was giving special revelation in the sense that he did then, that he actually calls to people in the sense that he did Abram, and he says, I need you to go to this place over here. Your comfort over here, your job, your family, everything that you have and that you take pleasure and delight in, you have your security, you have your, your friends and, and everyone else around you. I want you to leave all of that and go to a place that you don't even know. What are you going to do when you get there? We don't know. Where are you going to live? We don't know. We just don't know. You can add any other question in there. And the answer is going to be, from Abram's point of view, we don't know. And yet, as a result of the Lord showing himself to Abraham, manifesting himself in whatever way that he did. And actually, when you look in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's sermon, 
in Stephen's sermon, he says, beginning in verse 1, excuse me, verse 2, and we'll start there. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So it was actually in Ur of the Chaldeans that the Lord had appeared to him before they moved to Haran. So the Lord appeared to him whatever way that he chose to do so, maybe in a theophany. The Lord appeared to Abram uh, later on in that same way. But in any event, whatever way the Lord had appeared to him, he had chosen him in order to enter into covenant with. When the nations had been in rebellion once again, and the Lord had brought judgment upon them once again, in order to reconcile the nations, he chose one man in order to bless, and that through him he would bless all the nations through the coming one. The one that we were told of in Genesis chapter 3. That as the nations are in rebellion, they would be reconciled to him once again. Obviously through the work of Christ. This is God's gracious response to the troubled nations that have been scattered from the Tower of Babel. In Abraham, he would make a new nation. And that's what he tells him. Here's the promises that he made to him. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. The Lord appears and He gives him these particular promises. Now, in a polytheistic culture, they're worshiping various gods, figments of their own imagination, and the true God calls to this man. And this is very significant to not miss this. He obviously did not call to Abram because Abram was already a worshiper. He didn't call to Abram because Abram was such a, an amazing guy already or any, uh, any of that jive. He called to Abram out of a pure act of grace, calling him out of darkness and bringing him into light. And he did so out of everyone else. Nobody else in that time was called as Abram was. That doesn't I'm not implying that there were no other worshipers of Yahweh in that time. But I am saying that when it comes to the covenant that is being received here out of everyone else on the earth, in a polytheistic culture for the, for the most part here, one man is chosen. Well, you know, the interesting thing is we usually don't say that's not fair when it comes to this particular instance. We were told by Joshua they did serve other gods. So why was Abraham chosen? For no other reason than that's what the Lord desired to do. And yet we usually don't have a problem with this one. While the rest remain in darkness in their polytheistic beliefs, this man is called by the true God and given great promises by him. 
leave this land and I'm going to give you a new land. Leave this family and I'm going to make of you an even greater family. Leave all your comforts over here and I'm going to bless you with descendants. And you can look at the things that the Lord had blessed Abraham with. He was blessed with the descendants. He was blessed with wealth. He was blessed with influence. The Lord showed great favor to this man and his family. And it was all out of an act of pure grace. It was all out of the plan of God in which he would reconcile the nations. There is no other reason other than that this is the way that God had planned it as to why this man was chosen out of everyone else. And yet this divine call that is given, or that is recorded uh, here in chapter 12 is the very, uh, the, the very central theme that permeates the rest of this book. This divine call is central to the book of Genesis and develops the rest of the narrative of the law books from this one man's call. He's promised land, seed, blessing. And you know, for the most part, a lot of these things, he doesn't even get to see the, the fulfillment of them. When you read in Hebrews chapter 11, the very things that Abraham has promised, some of these things he is privileged to see, and other things he is not. And yet, what does he do? What does he do here? He believes the Lord. When Yahweh appears to him, and enters into this relationship with him, he believes and he obeys. He's going to be, he's going to be a blessing to others. As a result of the Lord calling him, as a result of his obedience, he is going to be a blessing to the nations. Because as we understand from the New Testament... That when he is talking about his seed, the seed of Abraham here, that it is specifically in reference to Christ. The Redeemer that is promised in Genesis 3.15, that is continuing through the line of Shem from Noah when the Lord wipes out everyone else but eight people. This is, this is the very theme that's permeating it all. The Lord's promise that he made is coming to fruition and he's going to do it through the line of Shem. He's going to do it through the line of Abraham. And all the nations are going to be blessed because the one that is coming is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The one that's coming is the one who is going to redeem those that were lost and reconcile the world that was in rebellion against him. Because our first parents had rebelled against the Lord and allied themselves with the great enemy of God. Abraham is central to the redemptive story. The Lord promises him, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And just as a side note, he's only talking to Abraham. This isn't given to the entire nation of Israel. This is given to this man. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. A great promise of the Lord. Abraham's 75 years old. His wife's up in age just as he is. And yet they have this promise 
by the true God that you're going to have descendants. And your specific descendant is going to reconcile the nations. They're, they're all going to be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. He takes Lot. He takes Sarai, his wife. All their possessions, everything that they had accumulated. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And notice this. Abraham, or excuse me, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Mori. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give, the, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, Abraham's response to the great promises of God and God's grace that has been granted to him is not, give me more, give me more, see how amazing that I am. His response to the Lord in light of the grace that has been extended to him after he was once serving other gods is, let me build an altar to you, let me worship you, let me honor you. For how great and magnificent that you are. For none of the gods of my fathers compare to you. That is the mindset of Abram. And what is it that prompted these things? The Lord's calling of him and the Lord's gracious promises to him. So he builds an altar. He not only builds an altar here, but he builds an altar in Bethel. He builds an altar in Ai. Everywhere that this man is going, he is building altars to the Lord. The very things that will stand as he moves to the next town. Or the next area in which the Lord had sends him. One writer says this, Through his vagabond journeys, traveling from north to south and leaving behind altars erected to the Lord, he symbolized what would become reality for his descendants. Possession of the land and worship of Israel's God. Now, just to say this in passing, this is a very important thing to understand when it comes to the worship of God. As to what it is that prompts us to worship God. What is it that promotes that within us? A desire and a delight in Him is the knowledge of Him. It is our knowledge of God that promotes our worship of God. That's what it is for Abram. Again, this is all by God's grace. Abraham didn't merit any of this. He was worshiping other gods when the Lord called to him. And notice that too. He would have kept on worshiping other gods had the Lord not intervened in his life. And turned him around. And showed him who the true God was. He wasn't one that just grew up worshiping Yahweh. He was the one who worshiped the moon god, perhaps, from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was the one who worshipped whatever other god. And yet, as a result of his conversion, that was the Lord's doing. As a result of his obedience, he is now seen as the father of all the faith. His worship of God was not prompted by anything else other than his knowledge of God and the promises that God had for him. Many promises that he wouldn't see. And this is, and this is very important to understand this. I remember listening to 
uh, Paul Washer in an interview that he had, I think, with Todd Frio. And Paul Washer is asked all the time when he goes to various churches, usually the worship leader will come up to him and say, you know, something about, you know, the, the worship of the church or whatever, uh, how, how do we need to worship, and et cetera, et cetera. And he asked this question, and he's asked it apparently a number of times to the worship leaders, well, what did you come up with after you read about the worship in the, in the scriptures? From Genesis to Revelation, did you study the passages on worship? And they look at each other like, no, we didn't do that. And he reminds them, do you know that God killed two worship leaders because they failed to do exactly what the Lord had commanded them? Leviticus chapter 10. And that is, and it is said in jest, of course, you know, when he says stuff like that. But it is something to just wrap your mind around to understand that these passages that give us these examples of people worshiping in the Scripture is not prompted by any outside influence to create a certain atmosphere for them to worship. It is prompted by God's grace and His promise in Christ. The knowledge of God is what moves our hearts to worship. It's not turning down the lights. It's not a certain type of music. It's not any kind of an atmosphere that you can create. Because any kind of atmosphere that you create is, is based on a false premise to begin with. It's a manipulation of your emotions. We want our emotions to be engaged, absolutely. But our emotions are engaged by truth. The truth concerning who God is. What has God done? That's what moves us to worship. Not anything else. You don't need to have a concert. You don't need fog machines and, and strobe lights and whatever else that you can throw in there that people do today. All you need is, first off, you've got to have the Spirit of God in you. And then the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and applies it to your heart and grows our understanding of the majesty and the splendor of our God. That's all you need. As one, one writer said this, he said that if we can't worship with Paul as he's chained to a guard in a dungeon, then we have a problem. Because that's how Paul worshipped. Chained to a guard in a Roman dungeon as he is writing Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And yet that's exactly what he did. There's no manipulation tactics here. It is based and grounded in the very nature and the character of the God who appeared to him. And that's all he needed. The deeper our understanding of God, the, the greater our worship. If we have just a superficial knowledge of God, then we're going to have superficial worship. But if you have those specific things that many churches do today, you leave out you feeling good. And you can even feel uh, very emotional within certain whatever the song may be. But just because you become emotional in something doesn't mean that that's actually worship. Unless those emotions are grounded in true knowledge of God. And that's why what it is that we sing of God must be true of God. 
One theologian said, you have no more right to sing a lie than you do to teach a lie. And usually we give this one a little bit of leeway over here. You must have your teaching right. You must, you must expound the scripture absolutely correctly. But on this song over here, after all, it's music. We have no more right to sing a lie than we do to teach a lie. If we desire to worship in spirit and in truth, then our worship is based on our knowledge of God, just as it was for Abraham. And to understand that this is not a comforting time for him in the sense of he's being lavished with all these wonderful things that he had beforehand. He's going to a place he doesn't know. What does that usually cause within people? But a little bit of anxiety. We don't know what's coming. We have no idea what where we're going tomorrow. And yet we are following in obedience to the Lord. And we are going to worship Him even though we have so many uncertainties. Even though our comforts are gone. We are still going to worship. So you need to understand that about Him worshiping and Him, him being so purposeful in, in His worship of the Lord. He doesn't just have everything that he wants and have everything that he needs. He does in the Lord. But on a human level, there's so many things that, that he just doesn't know. And yet, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of all the traveling that they're doing, in spite of the uncertainties, he still worships. He still honors the Lord. Your circumstances in life do not determine whether or not you worship the Lord or you don't. Your situation doesn't determine whether or not you worship God or you don't. It's not as if you worship God only in the good times of your life, but you also worship, or worship the Lord in the times of your uncertainties, in the times of your anxiousness, in the times of your hurts, in the times of your sufferings, in the times of your trials. You worship God at every in, in, in every part of your life, in every circumstance of your life, because He is worthy of being worshipped in every aspect of your life, in every circumstance. And that goes back again to your knowledge of God. And this is the difficulty, that if you have only that superficial knowledge and things go really bad over here, then the very things that you're going to be beginning to think about the Lord are, are questioning His goodness and questioning His nature and all of that because you don't have a deep understanding of the majesty of God. You know, when you read the Psalms, the Psalms have every human emotion in them, which are why they're, they're very good to read in your times of need and in your times of suffering. Because the psalmist will often start out, especially in the, in the Psalms of Lament, he will begin with pouring out his heart to the Lord of what's going on in his life and how he's struggling with this or struggling with that. But by the time you get to the end of the psalm, he is back to worshiping and honoring him that has dealt bountifully with him, that has been good to him. He remembers the things that God has done for him before and then he uses those things that God has blessed him with and how God has been so gracious to keep him, to keep him grounded, to understand that whatever it is that he's going through, God is good and God is going to bring him through as he has in the past. 
That's why you must preach back to yourself the very promises of God in the time of your suffering so that you don't forget who it is that you're worshiping and who you serve. Psalm 13 is one of my favorites. Because this is David pouring out his heart to the Lord. How long are you going to hide your face from me? And yet at the end of the psalm, He's feeling abandoned by the Lord. By the end of the psalm, he's praising the Lord once again. In the very circumstance that was one of the greatest trials of his life, it seems, within that psalm, the very thing he doesn't do is to run from the Lord or continually question the Lord's goodness towards him. Instead, he uses all the circumstances that he's enduring in that, in that particular time frame or whatever it is, and he pours out his heart in worship. And all that is grounded in his knowledge of God and his understanding of God's grace. And if you think of Abram in that same, that same sense as it is with everybody, you've been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. You've been taken from being in ignorance, walking after the futility of your mind, as, as the Apostle Paul says, walking after the course of this world, after the philosophy of this world and, and on and on being a child of wrath. And God has graciously plucked you out of that darkness. And He has transferred you to the kingdom of His Son. This is what the Lord did to Abram. Did for Abram. And that's why you see that... that that delight that Abram has for the Lord and that, that commitment that he has to the Lord because of God's gracious act. And we, could, we would call it saving him, converting him. That's why he worships, based on God's grace and his mercy and the promises that he has for Abram. These alone stir his emotions and stir his heart to worship the Lord as God. So he builds an altar in Shechem. He proceeds from there to the mountains on the east of Bethel. Pitched his tent there. Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. He builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. This is, this is that language of, of worship. And he journeys on towards Negev. Now, he is understood as one of the great, great examples of faith, and we'll see that as we continue to work our way through there. But just in this instance, you see his conversion. You see his obedience thereafter. You see his praise and the honor that he has for the Lord. And that in itself mirrors what happens to every believer, every true believer. This is really the pattern that is set before us, is the pattern for every true believer in Christ. He has bestowed grace and mercy and called you. The effectual calling of God that has achieved its purpose in your heart, your response to that is faith and true saving faith. And I say true saving faith because if you, for many, many around here, you ask them if they're a Christian or if they're saved, they always say yes. 
either one of two things. Either they just don't really want to talk to you because they know what you're going to say or they really think that they are. True saving faith is a faith that agrees with the facts of the gospel but also commits to those very truths. Your entire life is based and grounded in those truths. And true saving faith changes the heart. And the response to this heart change that has been done by the Lord in you is that true saving faith follows in obedience. If you really understand what God has done for you, as Abram did, then you can't help but to delight even more in Him every day as you consider who you are in light of Him. You can't help but delight and grow in that, in that, that adoration that you have for Him. And if you grow in that delight and that adoration, one of the very things that is characteristic of every true believer is how can I show you, demonstrate my love and my affection for you? And the very way that it has been done since the very beginning is we walk in obedience to the Lord. It's not that he sets out these rules in the sense of if you do these things, if you do A, B, and C, then, then I'll be good with you. Notice that there was nothing on the part of Abram that even prompted the Lord to call him. He just done it out of a pure act of grace. But the very thing that we often do is we put all these ABCs on here and, and we say, well, if we do this, this, and this, then the Lord's going to be pleased and the Lord's going to love us more. The Lord's going to delight in us more. Well, understand that the obedience part is your demonstration of your great affection for the Lord. He loves you to the fullest already if you're in Christ. There is no more love that can grow. You have the full measure, the full degree of God's love that He will ever love you with in Christ, and that is to the fullest. The obedience part is not that we have to check off a list, but we see the things that are contained in the law of God, and we see that these are an expression of God's holiness, His standard of righteousness, and we do those things not to attain salvation, but we do those things because of our salvation, that this is our our opportunity and our way to demonstrate our love for Him by keeping the very things that He has said, these things I delight in. What was it that the Lord delighted in with Abram? He tells him, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house into a land I'm going to show you. What does Abram do? He does the very thing that God has said to do. He was demonstrating his true saving faith and his delight in the Lord by his obedience to Him. To please God. That was, his, that was his delight. Was to do the things that he knew was pleasing to the Lord. These are the very things that, are, that, are, that Christians are called upon to do as well. In light of his great grace. His work in our hearts. His work in our hearts bringing about faith that we wouldn't have other than other than the fact of Him working in us in that way. We follow in obedience. We do the things that are pleasing to God rather than ourselves. We demonstrate that love and adoration by our obedience and our worship of Him. A worship that is based upon truth, grounded in truth. 
And those things come about, too, by reflecting upon what God has promised to you and I, just as he did to Abram. These are the things the Lord promised to Abram, and in, in light of those things, Abram follows in obedience. Abram delights in the Lord. Abram worships the Lord, and he recounts those blessings again in chapter 15 and in chapter 17, reminding Abraham, and that is a demonstration, too, of how we need to be reflecting upon the great promises of God. Do you know what the Lord has promised you? Do you know the great gift that God has bestowed upon you, the great blessings that He has lavished upon you? Do you know? Well, one of the main things that we look at is we say, well, we have eternal life, and that is exactly what the Lord has, has promised those that are in Christ. Absolutely. But do you know the great blessings that God has even now that he has lavished upon you? Do you recognize them? Or are we only thinking that this life is what it is and the great blessings of God will come when we enter into the eternal state? Because when the Apostle Paul talks about the blessings of God that are lavished upon us, in Ephesians chapter 1, these are in the present tense. These are what has been given to every believer. If you take just, just the blessings of salvation, if you take what's called by theologians the ordo salutis, there are nine particular blessings that have been granted to believers. The effectual calling of God. The one, the one calling of God that was effectual in the sense that He called to your heart, He changed you, and as He called upon you, you answered, and you answered in faith because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We talk about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit or being born again, of how the Spirit of God has taken out our heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, that kind of language. We're born from above. Our life was first patterned after our first, or after our representative parent, Adam, and now we are born from above. Now we have a new nature and a new set of desires. We have a, uh, a will that is bent to please the Lord and a mind that is fixated upon pleasing the Lord and growing in our knowledge of God. These are the workings of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us, who continually changes us, who continually molds us, who perfects our prayers before God, who perfects our worship before God, who intercedes on our behalf when we don't even know what to say. This is the things that the Spirit of God does. He is a constant companion with you. He unites you to the Lord Jesus. As the Lord Jesus is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father, that the Spirit of God is continually united to Him, and as a result of Him being in us, that we are united to Christ too because of His continued presence with us. You're granted faith, a faith that you didn't have to begin with. No one does. We all turned aside. We've all gone astray. There are none who seek after God. And yet, the Spirit of God brings about within us faith to call upon Christ in faith. And the amazing thing is that when you begin to consider just that part of it, that it is He that enables us to call upon Christ by granting us faith, it's that same faith that is now the instrument of our justification. That we are justified by faith, a faith that is given to us, a faith that is granted to us. That now, because of that work, that initial work 
of the Spirit of God in you that the Father declares you not guilty because of the faith that was exercised in the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness imputed to you through that faith, justified in the sight of God. You're adopted into the family of God. You're seen as sons and daughters of the King, sons and daughters of God, and treated as sons and daughters. You've been sanctified. You've been sanctified in the sense of you have what's two parts to this. What is one called definitive sanctification and the other is progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is, is that the chains of sin have been broken. You are no longer under the dominion and the mastery of sin. That has been broken. Sin no longer has reign over you. Because you are now a new man in Christ. You still have the rudiments of the old man that you have to contend with. And this will occur throughout all of your Christian life. And that's what's called progressive sanctification. That you become more alive to the Spirit of God and more dead to the flesh throughout the entirety of your Christian life. And this, you know, we talk about spiritual experiences all the time. People always focus upon spiritual experiences and they want experiences. Every time that the Spirit of God convicts your heart over something that you're doing, that's a spiritual experience. Every time that you delight in the Lord because you understood something so magnificent within the Scripture, that's a spiritual experience. And through these, very, through these workings of the Spirit of God within you, that you're being conformed even more to the image of Christ, being made after the likeness of Him and holiness of truth, as the Apostle Paul says. And that's also called perseverance. Because you continue to believe. There will never be a time in which you will be lost if you are a child of God. Because God has preserved you. And God has granted you faith, faith that will carry you to the very end. And you're united with Christ. And the culmination of what God has for those that are in Him is being glorified in Christ. That is, that is the, 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 the climax of your salvation is when you are glorified in Christ. Now, these are the blessings just of salvation. If you think of the great blessings that God has lavished upon you, even aside from those things, or really uh, things that are aspects of, of those particular nine, of God's continued presence with you, even in your time of your darkest hour, in the time in which you feel alone, in the time that you feel so anxious that nobody else can understand what's going on in your life, you constantly, consistently have one to run to that can know the feelings of your infirmities, which is Christ. And it is He that comforts your heart. It is He that encourages you. It is He that strengthens you in those times of need. And that is a great blessing that is lavished upon you, that you are never forsaken, you are never left alone, because the Spirit of God is in you. In the times of great joy, it's the Lord allowing those times in your life. There are so many things that we, we may not focus upon of what God has done and what promises that God has, the blessings that He has lavished upon you. And if you begin to just think and ponder and reflect upon the things that are contained in Scripture when it comes to those things, those promises of God, those blessings of God, then it does bring joy to your heart. It does bring a greater hope in you, even in times of suffering and in times of trial. One of the other aspects of Suffering and trial is 
is a greater faith. Sometimes we don't really see that as a blessing or perhaps as a benefit. But the scripture describes it as such. And that is again the Lord working in you to make your faith stronger. There are so many things, guys. You can look in the scripture and you can see so many different things that God has, has promised and that God has blessed. And I say that because there, there are so many misconceptions about what God, God's blessing. Now, it is true that God blessed Abram with descendants. He blessed him with wealth. He blessed him with, with land. But some of the greatest blessings are not wealth. We put so much emphasis on, on wealth or making a name for ourselves and, and any of this other stuff, but we miss the very things that God does within our lives on a perhaps smaller scale that are great blessings. We don't focus upon the promises that God has made to us about the continued presence of the Holy Spirit within us to do this great work within us and then the greater hope that we have in Christ and upon His return and all of that because we're so fixated on the worldly aspect of things. The very God that has called Abraham and has blessed Abraham and has granted faith to Abraham that entered into relationship with Abraham is the same God that has called you, that has granted you faith, entered in relationship to you, and has granted you great promises within the Lord Jesus. The same God. It began with Abraham, at least the great central figure of the faith. And you're counted as a child of Abraham, according to the promise. And in that sense, you receive the same blessings as Abraham. He is the great example of what the Lord has done in the life of a person. He was justified by his faith, just as you and I are. There are so many other things to say, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves going into the other aspects of his life. But just for now, to understand the very simple things that we're reading this evening are the very things that have been given and granted to you. This is... This is the same God that has entered into covenant with you through Christ bringing about that new covenant. The same God who has bestowed his love upon you just as he did with Abram. Sometimes it's needful for us just to just take a step back from all the hype and all the distractions and just begin to think just how truly blessed you are. How loved that you truly are. What grace that you have received. And allow those things to permeate your heart and to affect your heart so that when we do come together, we delight even more in the Lord. We yearn even more for a greater understanding of who He is and we sing the praises of, of our Lord in, in song or whatever. Let us indeed follow in the footsteps of Abraham in that sense of Here's the father of the faith. The Lord delighted in him, and he was called a friend of God. So we're going to spend some time talking about Abraham in the next couple of weeks. But we will stop there tonight. And if you would, please stand, and we will pray together. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you once again for this time together, 
Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the great blessings that you have blessed us with in Christ. Thank you for the great promises that we have in him. Promises that are realities even in this life. Not just the life to come. I have so many things to be thankful for of what you have done for us even now. Father, as we work our way through these these coming passages, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would, would apply these to our hearts, would grow our understanding of you, our delight in you would be to an even greater degree. Thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Thank you for saving us and granting mercy when we deserve justice. Thank you for the willingness of Christ to come and carry out all that was necessary. We are saved by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, by his completed work. Thank you so much for all that he did. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.